Hello and welcome back to season five of the Great Woman Artist podcast. I hope you are all doing well at this time. I am so delighted to say that today on the podcast, we will be discussing the great Helen Frankenthaler. But before we start, I am so excited to reintroduce our sponsor for this series, the brilliant Alighieri Jewelry, a collection inspired by Dante Alighieri's divine comedy with each piece corresponding to one of the poet's 100 poems. You can visit their wonderful work at W www.alighieri.co.uk and just for our listeners they are offering a 10% discount across all products with the code TGWA at checkout. From next week their founder Rosh Matani will be giving us an insight into one of their incredible jewellery pieces so be sure to tune in from then and I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello everyone and welcome to the Great Women Artists podcast with me Katie Hessel. Some of you might know me from The Great Women Artists, an Instagram account I set up in October 2015, which celebrates female artists on a daily basis, ranging from young graduates to old masters. Well, in a similar fashion to the Instagram, this podcast is all about celebrating female artists from a variety of backgrounds and histories. And I'm so excited to be interviewing artists on their career or artists, writers, curators or general art lovers on the woman artist who means most of them. What I want this podcast to do is celebrate female artists in all different capacities so you, the listener, can gain a look into the greatest female artists working now or from art history. I am so excited to say that my guest on the Great Woman Artist podcast is the highly esteemed curator, writer and educator and executive director of the Helen Frankenthaler Foundation, Elizabeth Smith. Educated at Bernard College and Columbia University and still now teaches in Bennington College's museum term programme as an adjunct professor, Elizabeth Smith has held a range of esteemed curatorial positions, such as the Executive Director, Curatorial Affairs at the Art Gallery of Ontario, Toronto, the Chief Curator and Deputy Director for Programmes at Chicago's Museum of Contemporary Art and Curator at the Museum of Contemporary Art, Los Angeles. Published widely, Smith has curated exhibitions and written texts on artists including Lee Bontecu, Jenny Holzer, Toba Kadori, Kerry James Marshall, Donald Moffat, Catherine Opie and Cindy Sherman, to name but a few. But the reason why we are speaking with Elizabeth Smith today is because she is one of the world's greatest experts on the life and work on the inimitable late Helen Frankenthaler, whose foundation she has run since 2013. One of the most groundbreaking, pioneering, abstract expressionist painters who innovatively invented techniques such as the soak stain technique, Helen Frankenthaler's six-decade career saw her rise up to be one of the most respected artists in the world. And that is why I am so delighted to say that she will be the artist who we will be discussing today. Elizabeth Smith, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? Thank you, Katie, for inviting me to speak to you about Helen Frankenthaler. I'm delighted to be here and I'm doing quite well today. Good, good, good. Well, thank you so much for coming on. It's such an honor to speak to you. Helen Frankenthaler is an artist who who I have continuously been fascinated by, in part because she was involved in so many critically historical moments, spanning from post-war abstract expressionists right through to the noughties. I mean, she passed in 2011 at the age of 83. I mean, whenever I see her work, I always feel so transfixed. It's like this 
incredible meditative feeling. You don't know kind of where to start or end up. You just kind of feel immersed. I was lucky enough to actually see her work, which might have actually been my favorite location at the Palazzo Grimani in Venice last year. And just seeing her work surrounded by water just totally put me into this kind of almost trance-like state. But I just love to start off by asking you, what was your first interaction with Helen Frankenthaler and her work? Well, that's a wonderful question, and it may sound a bit odd, but I never really thought much about her work at all until I saw an exhibition in early 2013 that had, was oh, being wow. presented in New York at Gagosian Gallery. And I saw the exhibition and I thought, my God, this work is incredible. And shortly thereafter, unbeknownst to me at that time, I was approached by the uh, Helen Frankenthaler Foundation that was just beginning to start itself up and was looking for an executive director. And having experienced such a strong reaction to the work and being so taken with it, I became interested in the opportunity because I felt that I could be a passionate advocate for this artist's work. And I felt that it was not well enough known at the time, despite the fact you know, that Frankenthaler had you know, a lengthy career over decades and was very well known. She really wasn't somebody that had been in my own personal orbit. So it was a bit of a surprise that I found myself landing into <laughs> Frankenthaler, the Frankenthaler orbit. Oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I never met her. I do work with some people at the foundation who did work with her closely and who know her very well. You know, we have a nice like balance of expertise among ourselves. I love this idea that she's come to you in sort of such a fresh way, in a way. <laughs> well, that, that's right. And I think it was helpful because I came to the work without preconceptions. I wasn't really invested in formalist criticism or the linkage of her work to the color field movement. And that hadn't really settled in my art historical consciousness so much. So I think when I did see the work in 2013, you know, when I saw a lot of it in one place, it really made an impression that I might not have had otherwise if I had been introduced to it much earlier. And how did you feel when you saw those paintings for the first time? I think the experience of seeing her work in person is so important. And as you just mentioned, Katie, you saw quite a few of her paintings in Venice at the Palazzo Grumani. And I, I think there's no substitute for seeing those works in person. Photographs of the work do not convey the nuances, the subtleties, the absolute way that the paintings can communicate to us in all their glory and all their power and all their intricacy. The, the subtleties yeah. just don't come out in photographs. So seeing a number of works in person or even seeing one painting in person is really critical <laughs> to our appreciation of her significance. Absolutely. I mean, can you tell us about one painting maybe in particular from Helen's entire oeuvre and tell us why it affects you so much? Well, across the decades, you know, <laughs> I, th I think I have a favorite painting from each decade because she did yes. you know, vary her abstract practice so much. But if I had to select one. I, I think I might choose a painting called Flood that she made in 1967. And it's now in the collection of the Whitney Museum in New York. It's oh, wow. an absolutely spectacular painting. <gasps> and yes, I love this. One. I, I hope everybody that's listening can find an image <laughs> of it and, and call it up. It's it's astonishing in person because it's very, very large. It's almost environmental in scale. 
And she must have drawn inspiration from some sort of natural phenomenon, either a sunset or a sunrise, because the colors, reds, oranges, pinks, and all variety of shades and hues within those tones are poured across the surface of this painting in a number of rivulets. And and you actually can see how she made the painting. You can sort of see how the pores flowed over the surface of the painting. And it's this amazing sort of liquid, fiery, just spectacular achievement. I very much love the way it was described by the art critic Barbara Rose, who was a champion of Frankenthaler's and interviewed her and wrote about her quite a bit back in the 70s. Barbara Rose described the painting as being not about an image of a sunset or a sunrise, but about the sensation of being inside that, like as as if you were feeling that experience. And I think that's just a beautiful way to think about that work. It's the effect it has on me when I observe it. Totally. I mean, it's so interesting you should say sunrise or sunset or something, because actually when I first saw this work, and actually I've only ever seen this work like this, as this kind of volcanic these sort of contour lines in a map you feel like you're kind of in this eruption I mean it's so all-consuming I don't know if I've ever seen it in the Whitney in the flesh but just seeing an image of it you feel like you can be in any perspective which I find so interesting with her work it kind of doesn't start in a certain way it doesn't end in a way you kind of just get completely immersed in it that's right and it almost seems like you know it could be a fragment of something and as you put it very well there's no sort of beginning nor end to this painting it seems to be able to flow endlessly in it there's a tremendous sense of space in the work and spatiality. Yes, yes. And she's able to produce these atmospheric effects in her painting in a manner that I think is very unique. Yes. And also when you see the painting in person and you go up close to it, you can actually see some of the marks of her hand. There's even wow. a footprint. You see her own footprint oh my gosh. in the painting <laughs> because she had to actually That's walk amazing. into the works to make them. She painted yeah. everything on the floor. And so, you know, she needed to get physically into the painting to make it. And I think that physicality and sort of the bravura of her gestures in, you know, literally and figuratively in making these paintings is what really distinguishes her as an artist. Yeah, totally. I think abstract, it actually reminds me, we, there's a fantastic young British artist called Jade Fadajatimi, who is kind of one of the most amazing young artists at the moment. And I just saw her exhibition at Pippi Holdsworth a few weeks ago. And actually one of her works reminds me of this because I saw a sunset of one of her works and then, you know, she was telling me that it completely wasn't that. So I love the idea that these kind of abstract forms can just mean so many different things to people. But I love this quote by Frank and Thaler. She says, you know, there are no rules. That is how art is born. How breakthroughs happen, go against the rules or ignore the rules. This is what invention is about. I mean, what do you think led her to becoming so innovative? I think she had an extraordinarily inventive mind from the start. She distinguished herself as a very young artist. I mean, already when she yeah. was studying at Bennington College, she was absorbing all kinds of lessons about modernism, about cubism, about even how to analyze and interpret the old master paintings and, and what made those paintings work. And she was fascinated with this and, and became very skilled at being able to navigate these issues. But then also she you know, was able to begin showing her work very early on. And she was plunged as a young person in her early 20s into this context 
of abstract yeah. expressionist New York. Yeah. You know, this, <laughs> this moment that just seems so legendary. But I mean, she had this amazing context of, of people who were her peers and people with whom she had conversations every day. And she was looking at art all the time and working frenetically in her studio and just filled with creativity from the beginning. She was very open and traveled a great deal. She went to Europe several times. She visited all the museums wherever she went, and she was able to filter it through this very keen mind. And she wasn't afraid. I think that she plunged into the making of abstract painting in a way yeah. that is rather inspiring. And she wasn't alone. You know, there, I mean, there were a number of young artists at that time and other, other women, too, as we now know yeah. more about, who were sort of fearlessly navigating this terrain of modernist painting and trying to figure out how they could create their own personal vocabularies within this almost established set of parameters at that time. Yeah, I mean, her work is just so highly unique. There's nothing like it. And I think it's so interesting you should say that she's interested in, you know, the European old master or something because years ago there was a fantastic Bridget Riley exhibition at the National Gallery here in London and they paired her work with the old masters and actually seeing these such inventive artists alongside, you know, when you get up close to a Tintoretto Red or something, you can actually see those influences, which is why I thought that Venice show was so beautiful because you also had that rich history that was surrounding them. But I mean, I want to go back to Helen's early beginnings. I mean, she was born in 1928 to a wealthy family in New York City. I mean, who were her family and what was her upbringing like? Well, her father was a judge for the New York State Supreme Court. So he was, you know, quite plugged into that world. And, and the family was well off. I mean, I, you know, I wouldn't say they were fabulously wealthy, but they were comfortable. Her origins were German Jewish. And she grew up on the east side of New York. And she was the youngest of three sisters. Uh, her two sisters were, I think, five and six years older than her, respectively. So there was a bit of an age gap. And Helen was rather doted yeah. on as a child. And she was very encouraged in all of her interests and her pursuits. And, you know, I think this instilled a confidence in her and, you know, a sense that she could set out to sort of do anything she wanted to do. <laughs> Yeah. And so she, you know, she demonstrated interest in art at a young age, and she was really encouraged in that. Of course, she also suffered a severe trauma and setback when her father, whom she loved dearly, died when she was 11 years old. And this threw the family into turmoil. And, you know, her mother had to deal with being a young widow with three daughters. Wow. Helen was very close to her father. So this was a traumatic experience for her. So things weren't always easy for her. I mean, she struggled in school at times. And it wasn't until she went to a, a high school called Dalton that she really flourished because they, they were a much more free form environment. You know, it wasn't like a rigid education. It was quite open to the students' different talents and abilities. And it was there that she studied with the, the Mexican painter Rufino Tamayo, who was teaching, oh, you know, yes. high school or students. Or the muralists. Yes, the muralists. He was teaching, <laughs> you know, high school students in New York. And, oh my and gosh, she wow. happened to have him as a teacher and he really, really encouraged her. So, you know, the, those early years were important for sort of setting the stage for what would follow. I mean, it's so interesting that she has this such kind of vibrant, rich upbringing already. You're being taught by this fantastic muralist and, you know, also just, I can imagine even going to school on the Upper East Side, you're surrounded by the Metropolitan. But it was this, this total kind of vibrant, rich kind of uh, city that was happening. I mean, downtown, you had the abstract expressionists were already kind of brewing. I mean, what was it like to be an artist at this time? I mean, would she have been aware of what was happening downtown at that time? 
I think she definitely became aware of it when she attended Bennington College and began to study with a professor there named Paul Feely and to become much more well-versed in what was going on currently in the current scene. And then as soon as she graduated, she moved back to New York City and she began to immerse herself in that environment. And I think the thing that really kicked it off for her is that she was invited to organize an exhibition of work by Bennington College alums. So she put together this exhibition. She included her own work in it. I think it was just the year after she graduated. So I guess 1950. And she called up the critic Clement Greenberg, who was well known at the time. And she invited him (laughs) to attend the exhibition. And he did. No. And they met and they, you know, became friends and then romantic partners shortly thereafter. But having her put together that exhibition and begin to create a bit of a scene around it, uh, I think, you know, sort of set her off on this path in the art world. So just the next year, 1951, she was included in the very important exhibition called the Ninth Street show of painting and sculpture. And she was the youngest artist in that show. And that later became known as the exhibition that was the first time the New York school artists were sort of together as a group and launched what later was known as the abstract expressionists. So she just, you know, became involved really quickly. And she was invited to join the Tibor Dinaj Gallery in 1951, and she began to show with them. So she had a context for actually exhibiting her own work. And that was a tremendous environment for her as well, because she had a lot of artist friends who were part of it, too. Larry Rivers, Grace Hardigan, and numerous others. But she went around with Clement Greenberg, too, and they would go to see exhibitions every week. Apparently, they went to all the shows. Well, there weren't that many at the time, so you could do it pretty easily. (laughs) They would gather at the club where the, the abstract expressionist New York school artists would go to talk about art and just hang out and drink and socialize. <laughs> so she, she was you know, squarely immersed in that environment from a very early age. It was very fruitful for her. Yeah, totally. I mean, I just love the idea that, you know, putting a, putting together sort of an, an old school show that she invites literally one of the most sort of, I don't know, famous critics of the time. I think it's a lesson for everyone listening, you know, don't hold back, go after those people and get them to come and see your work. Exactly. She had great <laughs> confidence. As I had mentioned, it was instilled in her at a young age to be able to put herself out there and not fear the consequences. Absolutely. I mean, I mean the Ninth Street show was totally critical. And I love the fact that I think you had to have a sort of certain size for a work but actually she ended up putting like a sort of seven foot painting in which was much larger than suggested I think as as did Joan Mitchell they were sort of totally shunned the rules and said I'm going to take up space well it was important for them to be part of that exhibition and I mean the interesting thing now is that when we look back you know at the list of names of artists who were included in there many of course are the very well-known figures but there were quite a number of women And I do think this whole issue of women as part of the abstract expressionist movement became downplayed and was overlooked for quite some time until, you know, just recently when new scholarship has brought the contributions of so many of those women to light. In Helen's case, you know, she really did manage to develop and maintain a career that was a strong and important one over the decades. And she didn't suffer from the kind of a situation of being eclipsed 
that some of the other women figures of that group did. But I mean, what must it have been like to be a woman artist at that time amongst the abstract expressionists? Because I think when we think of abstract expressionists, we do think of these kind of very macho, masochistic, kind of all over action painting that is inherently, in quotation marks, very male. Well, I think our understanding of all of that has changed, especially in recent years with the amount of new scholarship that's been done. And it's becoming more and more evident that the abstract expressionist group, yes, it was divided into generations, the early figures who instigated the movement who were primarily male. And the second generation was a mix. And there was a difference in sensibility too. So we do know that the women you know, were able to get quite a good bit of exposure and they were able to show their work. They were able to participate in these contexts, but only a few of them, only really people like Helen, like Joan Mitchell, like Lee Krasner to a certain extent, because she faced other challenges and Grace Hardigan, you know, they were able to part of the crowd in a way, but yet they also suffered a great deal of, of, I hate to use the word discrimination, but I'll use it because I think that many of them were subjected to a lot of sexism and a lot of what we now call gender bias, the way their work was written about. I mean, Helen's work was often criticized for being too feminine or too lyrical or, you know, perhaps not serious enough. And the critic uh, Harold Rosenberg actually even talked about her in quite derogatory terms, saying that it was her paint that was the medium. The artist herself wasn't, you know, really in control of her work. It, w- it was the paint that that was doing it all, which, you know, I think I see what he meant. He was trying to contrast her with the heroic, macho, earlier abstract expressionist. But I think that's such a false interpretation of what she was doing, because her method that she developed just a few years into her career, when she really took Jackson Pollock's innovations and made them her own and then took them to another level, was extremely rigorous but it was also extremely spontaneous. And her painting was very physical and very gestural. And she was very, very, very much in control of what she was making, despite her keen need to improvise. Absolutely. I mean, the works that she makes, I mean, in every decade, they're so interesting, but especially in the early 50s, it's not really like anyone has ever seen before. I mean, I'm thinking something like Mountains and Sea. I love the quote, she said that she felt the landscapes were in my arms as I did it. I mean, this is when she's really started to use the soak stain technique. Can you tell us about this technique and how she kind of used it for her work? She was very inspired by Jackson Pollock. And she actually also had the chance to visit his studio out in Long Island, out in the Hamptons with Clement Greenberg. She was so taken with the way his work projected space and significance. So after absorbing and sort of digesting what it was he was doing, she and Clement Greenberg had taken a trip to Nova Scotia one summer And the landscape there is magnificent. The mountains meet the sea there in an extraordinary way. She came back from that trip, and several months later, she decided to put a canvas down on the floor, as Pollock did. And she took oil paint, and she thinned it down to a consistency where it could actually be a a liquid that could be poured. And she began to make a painting. And the outcome was mountains and sea. And I think that one was really one where the spontaneity of the work overtook her rational mind. Because she talks about when she finished it, she wasn't quite sure what she had done. She wasn't sure if it was any good, but she knew it was something quite different and unique. But really from around that point onward, this soak stain technique with the thinned 
paint being able to be absorbed. That became her characteristic way of working, thinning the paint down, always working on the floor, and then guiding it onto the surface of the canvas. And it would be absorbed because of the thinness of the paint and the fact that the canvases were unprimed. The pigment was absorbed directly into the fabric. So it became something where the, the pigment and the, the fabric of the canvas almost were one. But she also, you know, over time ended up not just simply pouring. I think it's a, it's a misunderstanding if we think that Frankenthaler only poured onto a flat yeah. surface. She did much else. She was very interested in using different tools. She used brushes. She used squeegees. She used sponges. She used her hands you know, all kinds of materials and objects. And you can often see the traces of those in the paintings, which is also another reason why it's so important to see the works up close. But the soak stain technique was the thing that Frankenthaler became known for. That became sort of her signature technique. And what was the kind of reaction for when she did exhibit things like mountains and sea? I mean, because she was so young at this time, she must have been only about sort of 23, 24 or something. Yeah, she, she was a very young artist at the time. Well, it was included in a show at Tibor Dinaj Gallery. And of course, it didn't sell. I think nothing from that show sold. And I believe it was priced at $100. <laughs> maybe oh my maybe at that time, that was a lot. I'm not quite sure. <laughs> But nobody wanted to buy it, and certain critics didn't know what to make of it. But among artists such as Morris Lewis and Kenneth Noland, who went to her studio and saw the work shortly after she'd made it, they were extremely excited by the possibilities it presented, and they decided to try to use the same technique. So then oh, wow. after that time, their work completely changed, and then they ended up producing the paintings that became known as their signature works. But meanwhile, Frankenthaler continued to use the soak stain, but each painting she made after Mountains and Sea becomes quite different. And to me, that's one of the hallmarks of her work. She would go on to make works that looked very different from each other in the space of a single year. I mean, it's almost astonishing. You know, she wanted to make each painting a unique problem. A new set of challenges was going to be addressed each time she made a mark on the canvas. So I think that's another attribute of her work that's distinctive for many other artists at the time. Definitely, definitely. And I love this idea that, you know, when you actually see it in the flesh, it's not like this, you know, thick impasto. You don't see the kind of different layers. It's all kind of rooted and actually sort of soaked into the canvas, which is extraordinary. I mean, we've got a beautiful one of the Tate collection here in London called Eden. And again, it's completely different to Mountains and Sea. And it's just kind of this dazzling eruption of colours. And it's it almost feels more figurative as well. It's so interesting. There's a real kind of musical or sort of lyrical poetic element to her work. They're like these kind of dancing characters or something. That's right. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because another attribute of Frankenthaler as an abstract painter that's different from many of her contemporaries is her interest in figuration and representation and recognizable imagery and content that permeates the paintings. Now, it's always subtle. In some cases, less subtle than in others. Eden is a great example where you have actual numbers written in. So yes. 100 and elements that resemble a garden. And there's another painting in that same room. And, I, and you're referring to the grouping that's now at the Tate Modern. Yes, yes. All those paintings are lent from the Frankenthaler Foundation collection, by the way, except for one that we gifted to the Tate. Oh. <laughs> so I'm so happy you brought them up. There's another one in that room that's called Europa. And <gasps> it, it just so happens that that painting is inspired by an art historical work um, by a Titian 
called Rape of Europa. Oh my gosh. Which I believe is now also on view in London. When you look at the Frankenthaler and then you look at the Titian, you can see where she got her inspiration, but you don't really see any overt sense of the source. So what's so brilliant is the way that she's able to abstract from the overall sensibility and some specific passages or reference in the original painting. But she takes those and she makes them very much her own. And she creates an extraordinary, dazzling, abstract painting that's filled with incredible and amazing visual incident. I had no idea that she was so inspired by the old masters, but now it's kind of all making sense. And I mean, this work in particular is absolutely stunning. I mean, it's just this marvel. And there's so much kind of going on. It's quite chaotic, but at the same time, kind of serene. And also just the kind of placing of colours together. It's so fascinating and so kind of alive and eruptive. Yes. So I'm particularly taken with how Frankenthaler did respond to a very great variety of earlier artists, you know, whether it's a Titian or a Rembrandt or Goya or, or Matisse. Across the, the, the centuries, she would find things of interest to her in their paintings that she would want to reinterpret or, you know, really use as a point of departure to make something very different, but yet you can see the relationships. So like landscape, she never painted an image of a landscape per se, but she would take inspiration from the attributes of the landscape yeah. and from the mood, the feeling, the sensibility of that particular landscape. And she would use those as points of departure in her abstract paintings. She wasn't purely formalist. And she talked about herself as a space maker, too. She wanted to be a space maker on a flat surface <laughs> and to find ways through color, through gesture, to make a beautiful painting. That was a term she also liked to use. But of most importance to her was making something that seemed alive, but yes. that would breathe and would have the sense of atmosphere that is very captivating for us as viewers to observe. Totally. They're very kind of anatomical as well. They, they're, they're sort of cell-like in a strange way. They kind of have these different kind of moving parts, quite kind of bodily in the sense that they have all these different functions. But yes. I mean, you know, the late 50s, she was really starting to sort of gain recognition. I mean, in 1957, she was included in this kind of monumental um, spread in Life magazine, which was called Women Artists in Ascendance, which put together five female artists. I mean, what did this article mean for Helen at the time? Well, of course, it was quite an honor to be included, you know, in a spread like that. I think it's an interesting example of how the younger women artists at that time were really being given some attention and then their achievements and accomplishments were being noted. But at the same time, it wasn't so significant for her because she was continuing to make her work and, and you know, spending so much time in the studio. And she did get a lot of attention and publicity. I think she was also very photogenic. And the image that was included in that particular spread was taken by the African-American photographer Gordon Parks, who, you know, we now know a lot about. I mean, he's gotten a lot of attention recently yeah. for his own work. Oh, my gosh. I never knew that he took yeah. that image. That's yes, amazing. Yes. He was working as a photojournalist and was hired yeah. by the magazine to, to shoot that spread. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness, that's fascinating. There's just been a fantastic exhibition of Gordon Parks here in London. Yes. Oh my goodness, that's such a fantastic image. For those who haven't seen it, it's her literally 
on three different walls, including the floor, surrounded by her paintings. It's absolutely magical. But I mean, also at this time, she's winning prizes at the Biennale in Paris. In 1960, she has her first major solo exhibition at the Jewish Museum in New York. I mean, how was her painting then developing in the 60s? In the 60s, her work took a slightly different turn. And I think the occasion of having the retrospective at the Jewish Museum, I mean, it really was just a survey of 10 years worth of work. But Frankenthaler had produced quite a lot of astonishingly (laughs) wonderful and powerful work during that decade when she was still in her 20s. Oh my goodness. (laughs) The experience of having this show, I think, as for any artist who has an exhibition, they think about what they might want to do differently. And her work began to develop in a slightly different direction after that time, I think, in response to her consideration of her own achievements. But also, she was very much aware of what was happening in the art world, too. And in the early 60s, this was the time when pop art was emerging and there were other movements and tendencies taking place and figures like Rauschenberg. And so she was looking at all of that. And her work changed a bit to become slightly bolder and more graphic, less painterly, less expressionistic. And many of the paintings she made in the 60s are uh, composed of larger shapes, larger forms of color, fewer linear gestures that you see so much in the work of the 50s. Also important to that was that she switched from oil paint to acrylic paint in the early 60s. And acrylic has just a different way of engaging with the surface uh, of a canvas. But like, you know, similar to what she did with the oil paint, she thinned the acrylic down. So it was that same watery consistency. And she experimented with what she could do with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of my favourite works from this decade, which is also, I think, one of my favourite works ever of hers, is Canyon from 1965, which is this incredible, basically the whole canvas is covered, which is, I think, quite unusual for her in a way. And you can see that she's almost filled in this canyon, which just sort of has a border of green with this just luscious, just fiery, eruptive orange paint. I mean, it's just so confronting. Yes, that's right. (laughs) To your point about how infrequent she seems to have, you know, sort of covered the surface of a canvas. I, I would actually say that it was at this time, it was in the 60s, where she began to sort of go back and forth between making paintings where the surface was almost entirely covered with paint, and as well as making paintings where there were large areas of the canvas left bare, and where you have sometimes even a single color. There's a painting that's titled Stride, that's in the collection of the Metropolitan Museum, that is a very simple painting in that it consists of just really what looks like just two gestures of orange. And it's quite Barnett Newman like in a way. It is. Yes, exactly. So she was really thinking about the different ways she could experiment with abstraction, the different kinds of effects her work could produce. And she had a desire for a simplicity at that time that, you know, is different from what we've seen before. Absolutely. I mean, it's just so kind of just constantly inventing the whole time. But I mean, again, the 60s was such a big decade for her. I mean, what's incredible about her career and maybe what differs her to someone like Lee Krasner, who actually kind of got recognition much later on in life, was that she was constantly being recognised. You know, she represented America at the Venice Biennale in 1966. In 1969, she had a major solo exhibition at the Whitney, which then travelled to the Whitechapel here in London. I mean, what was kind of going on in her life at this time as well? Well, this was a time when she was really at the height of her career, and she was just riding high, I think, in every respect. She also had married in the late 50s the painter Robert Motherwell. 
And oh, yes. the two of them were married until around 1971. So not only did she have this extraordinary painting career, but she was also having a very active social life in her marriage to Robert Motherwell. They loved to entertain. They loved to have people over for dinner. And Helen was the outgoing one. She was the gregarious one, whereas Robert Motherwell was apparently quite introverted. So she really was the one that made this wonderful life for them. She was also lecturing and teaching on occasion, and they would go out and they would see every exhibition. You know, they were traveling all over the place. I mean, it's extraordinary to read her date books, which we have in the foundation's archives. And you see what she was doing every day and you think to yourself, wow, God, you know, how could talk about doing it all or having it all? She, I mean, she's an inspiration, even to those of us in this day and age that feel like we're, you know, multitasking on a massive scale. She was very, very active, very energetic, and she was achieving great things in her work at the same time. So this period of the 60s and leading up to the Whitney exhibition in 69, which was a major show, the fact that it traveled in Europe was very significant. And it was at that time that her reputation internationally began to you know, develop further. I mean, it's so interesting because, you know, when we look back at it and we think about this, I mean, it just looks like she was given every opportunity and, you know, in a way, to be honest, you, know, you don't even really think of gender bias when someone's representing America at the Venice Finale in 66. But I mean, in 1970, this was, especially in New York, this was the decade of protest. This was the decade of change. And I mean, was she involved in that feminist movement at all? Or did she feel any affiliation to it? I mean, considering she was a kind of George O'Keefe style figure in a way, she was so big. Well, she always distanced herself from that. She actually didn't feel an affinity to the feminist movement. And I think she really resisted being what she may have felt was being co-opted into it. She never liked to talk about herself as a woman artist. She always, you know, rejected associations. (laughs) She'd hate this podcast. (laughs) But, you know, I think that she she was very much of her generation in that respect. I think... You know, there were other artists, other female artists who also felt the same way and didn't want to have their work looked at or talked about in that way. And I think to some degree, they didn't want to be ghettoized. I mean, from those who came up with the abstract expressionists, they wanted to be considered first and foremost as artists and on a par with the male artists. Yeah. Helen often was asked that question. What does it feel like to be a woman artist or how do you explain this or that in relationship to your gender? And she really didn't want to talk about it. You know, she said, first and foremost, I'm an artist. I don't really care to talk about my gender. Or She felt it was insignificant. But at the same time, and I think especially now, looking back, we can see that didn't matter that she didn't want to be associated with that. She was a hero. She was a pioneer. Figures who had made it. And, yeah. you know, was a, was a role model for younger artists. And now, I mean, there's so much talk about an analysis of what women artists during that time period had to deal with and how their work was received. She really, you know, today, you know, has become such a hero for younger artists that yes. we, meaning, you know, the foundation and, and myself representing her, we're very comfortable in, you know, talking about her in, in relationship to other women artists, but she herself never wanted to do that. Yeah, that's so interesting. But I mean, you know, 
she continued to live I mean, until 2011, which was just remarkable. And her career continued to flourish in the sort of 70s, 80s and 90s. I mean, interestingly, she was very sort of from the mid 70s. She was very interested in the kind of American Southwest, which again, kind of bringing in this idea of George O'Keefe. And then her work really starts to change. I mean, she starts to take up printmaking. I mean, I'm looking at a work called Cedar Hill from 1983, a fantastic woodcut. And the fact that she's kind of applying the beautiful kind of forms of her soak stain technique to printing is just remarkable. Yes, yes. She was very interested in printmaking and she actually began making prints in the early 60s and she began woodcuts a bit later than that. But once she began, she produced a tremendous body of work over the decades and it was something that really captivated and engaged her. So different from her painting practice, which was so much of a solo activity. In printmaking, you have to collaborate with others. You have to work with and rely on experts who know how to do certain things technically. And she came to really enjoy that process. She continued that alongside her painting, being very active. Um, She also made ceramics and she experimented with some different mediums along the way. What I find so interesting is that in the early 80s as well, she traveled to Japan and was very interested kind of by Japanese expert woodcarvers and printers, which I don't know why this reminded me of it. I'm thinking back to people like Mary Cassatt and Bert Morisot and the Impressionists and how intrigued they were by Japanese woodblocks. And actually when I'm looking at something like Cedar Hill, I almost think of someone like Bert Morisot and I know that someone like Joan Mitchell was obviously very inspired by those Parisian artists at the turn of the century, but there's just so much kind of going on. I don't know what it is. I just get this kind of feeling that there is this kind of affinity. Yes, I think she had great admiration for the technical skills and she was very drawn to their sensibility. As with painting, she looked at a lot of work done by other artists in earlier times. So her woodcuts are just extraordinary for their technical accomplishments also. I mean, the number of colors she would use in a single work. I'm very happy to say also that we know that the Dulwich Picture Gallery is planning to present an exhibition of Frankenthaler's <gasps> woodcuts in, no I believe way. it's in late May of 2021. Oh my gosh, that is a total surprise for me. That's so exciting. So it, it will be, you know, quite <laughs> extraordinary, you know, to have an opportunity to see a large body of her woodcuts brought together in yeah. one place. Uh, at that time there. Totally, because I've also never seen her woodcuts. So I'm just, I've only ever seen kind of reproductions of them and actually only kind of realized that she even, you know, experimented with this medium as of recently. But I mean, what was she doing towards the end of her life in terms of her art? Well, she kept up an active practice close to the end. And the interesting thing is that after her retrospective in 1989 in the United States, which was shown at at quite a few significant museums, including the Museum of Modern Art, the Los Angeles County Museum, she continued to make and show work, but she wasn't really at the center of the discourse anymore. I mean, that's the art world, right? She was, you know, by that time, sort of a senior figure, a well-established figure, Um, There were many other discourses and movements and and interests in the art world that were, you know, at the center of attention as opposed to the abstract painting of a figure like Helen Frankenthaler. So her career was eclipsed somewhat, despite the fact that she continued to make a pretty extraordinary series of works over the years. And so it really wasn't, I think I can say safely that it really wasn't until after her death. And, you know, now that we have stewardship of the works that she left behind in her own collection. Wow. We have really tried to make them available for loans to exhibitions to assist scholars with reinterpreting and revisiting the work. And, you know, I think that's gone a long way toward 
opening people's eyes and minds back up to Helen Frankenthaler's achievements. And I should mention also that when I started my work at the foundation in 2013, there was not a single painting of Frankenthaler's on view in any of the New York City museums, and all of them own important examples of the work. Yeah. Her work, it hadn't been out. It hadn't been. Curators weren't interested in putting out Frankenthaler's work at that time. So I'm happy to say that in the seven or so years since, all of the New York City museums have put her work up on view, sometimes multiple times. Wow. Therefore, people are able to actually see and experience the work in person, which in turn yields to a greater excitement and appreciation and understanding of what she actually achieved. Totally. Totally. I mean, I mentioned you just before this, but I mean, one of the reasons why I'm doing an episode on Helen Frankenthaler is because I obviously wanted to do it anyway, but I've had so many requests for it. And I think what's so interesting about her work is that it's so, it's such a timeless, I think she kind of reminds me of someone like Alice Neal, where actually today it feels so contemporary and fresh and like nothing I've ever seen before. Why do you think that people now are so taken with her work? I mean, what makes her so contemporary? To me, one of the things that really gives her work a very contemporary sensibility is how much it seems to be in dialogue with what more current painters are doing. Yeah. And you would look at some of Frankenthaler's paintings and they feel as if they could have been painted in the past decade. They really feel very fresh. And I think many of the artists of today recognize that, you know, and they see in Frankenthaler's work some things that excite them. Yeah. One of the artists who has spoken, in my mind, most eloquently about Frankenthaler's impact is the painter Amy Silman. She has had very interesting things to say about Frankenthaler. And she talks about how when she herself was a young artist in the, you know, in the seventies, you know, she didn't really care about Frankenthaler. She knew about Frankenthaler, of course, but that (laughs) seemed old hat to her. That's already been done. I want to do something different. That painting's too grand or doesn't speak to me. But she talks about how recently she looks at Frankenthaler's paintings entirely differently. And she sees in them the struggle you know, the artistic struggle that Frankenthaler must have undertaken in the studio. She sees a bravery and a willingness to engage in risky pursuits on the surface of a canvas. And she's really inspired by some of the ambiguous passages and the sense of awkwardness that are evident in some of Frankenthaler's paintings. And all of those things are very, very contemporary. Frankenthaler was criticized during much of her lifetime for working in a way that maybe didn't seem as serious as it could have, or for making work that seemed slightly feminine or playful in its sensibility. (laughs) And Frankenthaler was always very free form. And there was that content in the work, all kinds of things that were somewhat, you know, unconventional. I think today people look at that and they get very excited and inspired by it. Totally. I mean, I I strongly believe that we're in this kind of age of rediscovery. And, you know, I think because of the amount of images we have on offer, I don't think artists have ever looked back to history like they have now. I mean, it's just incredible, the resource that we have, uh, books, the internet, even something like Instagram or something. They're just such amazing tools. You know, when I see a work from the 60s that feels so fresh, it speaks to me even kind of more immediately than something that was made yesterday or something. But I'd, I'd love to ask you, you know, what has she taught you and what does she mean to you? When I I began my position at the foundation, I had a very limited understanding of Frankenthaler. And seven years later, I continue to learn from looking at her paintings. I I, I find them so rich and so stimulating and satisfying that my 
admiration for her accomplishments continues to grow. And I also recognize that, you know, while she had many privileges in her life, she also had a lot of hardship and struggle. And painting and making art was really sort of her salvation. Like that, that's what kept her going from the beginning to close to the end of her life. I find her to be a figure that's endlessly fascinating because I think that there's also so much work that's still to be done. For instance, yeah. there has been no major retrospective or exhibition of her work since 1989. There's been no yeah. biography that's been written on Frankenthaler oh that gosh. covers her whole career. And as more and more art historians and curators and artists become interested in her, I know that that activity is going to escalate. So we're very excited about the possibilities that lie ahead in terms of, you know, even more understanding of Frankenthaler's work. And I just want as many people as possible to be able to see more of the paintings in person. Totally. I mean, I should add that, you know, for those in London, hopefully when we're not in lock tier three, do go and see the Tate Modern display because it's free and it's just remarkable. But Elizabeth, thank you so much for this just fascinating and in-depth conversation on Helen Frankenthaler. I, I can't wait for the world to discover even more of her work. And I really think it's time that we there was a sort of major exhibition, which I would absolutely love to see. But as this is the Great Women Artists podcast, we do always ask our guests, if you could meet Helen Frankenthaler, would there be anything that you would ask her or say to her? Oh my gosh, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> I would have so many things I would want to, to say to her and questions to ask her. I do know that she was a great deal of fun. Apparently she had a yes. wonderful sense of humor. And if I had the opportunity, I would love to hear her make jokes. Apparently she loved, yeah. she was very witty. She was also a little bit, you know, body. And so I would be fascinated to be in the presence of Helen Frankenthaler while she was, you know, riffing on something in that way. I think it would be great fun. Oh, amazing. Well, Elizabeth Smith, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you so much for asking me. Thank you all so much for listening to the 53rd episode of the Great Woman Artist podcast with the brilliant Elizabeth Smith on the trailblazing Helen Frankenthaler. I'm absolutely blown away by Frankenthaler's fantastic and such extensive and wide-ranging career as told by Elizabeth Smith and urge you all to look up her work. As always, I have linked to everything in the show notes. This episode was sound edited by the brilliant Laura Hendry and if you have been enjoying these episodes so far, I would be so grateful if you were to leave a review as it helps others find us. And of course, thank you so much for listening to the Great Women Artists podcast with me, Katie Hessel.